0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener
1: discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this series, Till Death Do Us Part, I'll share cases of love that went deadly wrong soon after the I do's were said. In this episode a young woman meets a man and quickly marries. Soon after the wedding, she plans a honeymoon road trip with her new spouse. They will drive across the country to begin their new life together in another state. But after saying farewell to family and friends, the bride is not heard from again. What happened to Nancy Joe Andrade? And was there a monster lurking underneath the charming exterior of her new husband? This is the case of Nancy Joe Andrade and Mark Christopher Crewe. Nancy Joe Andrade just wasn't cut out for the single life. At age 31, Nancy was a divorced mother of two. She'd first been married soon after graduating high school and still had an amicable relationship with the father of her 12-year-old daughter and 5-year-old son, but the marriage hadn't worked out. Nancy Joe lived in San Jose, California, and had begun her career as a nurse 10 years earlier. She worked at Kaiser Hospital in the nearby town of Santa Clara, which kept her pretty busy. She shared custody of her kids with her ex-husband, as her shifts at the hospital were sometimes long. The work was hard, but rewarding, and also paid pretty well. Nancy was good with her money and had been able to save enough of her wages to indulge herself in a few nice things. She owned a newer truck, which she used to haul a horse trailer. One of Nancy's great loves was horses. She even owned her own horse, a beautiful Morgan that she loved to ride in the hills of Santa Clara Valley. Nancy was still young and quite beautiful, but she wasn't much for the partying lifestyle. She really just wanted to settle down with a nice guy in a stable, loving relationship. Her parents, Jake and Joan Wilhelmy, had met and married soon after Jake was discharged from the Air Force. They'd moved to California and raised four children together, Nancy, Jerry, Sandy, and Kimberly. They'd been happily married for 40 years, and Nancy wanted to find the type of life and love her parents shared her friends encouraged her to go out and meet people soon after her divorce. One of the places her girlfriends liked to go listen to music and dance was a country-western bar located in the heart of San Jose called The Saddle Rack. Now, some of you might know that I was born and raised and still live in the San Jose, California area. While I'm a bit too young to have been a patron of The Saddle Rack, or as regulars dubbed it, The Rack, even if I was a bit older, it probably wouldn't have been my scene. I'm not a country music fan, Sorry to all of you who are, but I'm a rock and roll girl. But the cellar rack was a San Jose institution for many years. When Nancy Joe was dragged out to the nightclub by her friends in 1981, it had already become quite popular, partially due to the popularity of the movie Urban Cowboy that was released in 1980, starring John Travolta and Deborah Winger. The movie featured the romance between characters Bud and Sissy from the time they met at a Texas country western bar, Gillies, to their whirlwind romance and quick marriage. It was a fun, sexy romp of a movie that featured lots of good-looking young people boot scooting to young country music and some disco. The saddle rack was San Jose's version of the world-famous Gillies Honky Tonk. Like Gillies, the rack was cavernous in size, boasting seven bars, three dance floors, two bandstands, and a mechanical bolt. Hundreds of young singles converged at the Rack every weekend to drink, dance, and hopefully meet their own urban cowboy or cowgirl. I mean, John Travolta did look pretty good in a cowboy hat and tight Wrangler jeans. Nancy Joe and her friend Darlene frequented the Saddle Rack in the winter of 1981. One night, Nancy met a buff-mustachioed, dark-haired 28-year-old named Mark Christopher Crew. Crew had been in the Army and had bounced around the country before ending up in California. He was also divorced and had recently moved to California from Texas and was now working as a truck driver. Crew was handsome and charming, and Nancy was attracted to him right away. They began dating, but after a few weeks, Nancy didn't think he was the guy for her. He was very popular with the ladies and pretty flirtatious. Nancy didn't want a relationship where she'd constantly have to worry if her boyfriend was messing around. It was pretty clear that Mark Crew wasn't the type of solid, dependable guy she was looking for. After a couple of months, she and Mark ended the relationship. Now unencumbered by a man, Nancy and her friend Darlene decided to plan a cross-country road trip. They scheduled their vacation for the following summer, and to make the trip extra fun, Nancy decided to purchase a newer model Corvette sports car she'd had her eye on. It was bright yellow, and when Darlene drove the little Corvette around town, she turned heads. Nancy had been right about Mark. He wasn't a one-woman man and had been seeing several women. But he couldn't stop thinking about the pretty blonde nurse. Sure, he could have had the attention of a number of pretty women, it was true. But Nancy had something those other women didn't, namely money. From their time together, he'd noticed her nice truck, learned that she owned a purebred horse, and lately had seen her driving around town in her yellow sports car. He was tired of scraping by and bouncing around from job to job. With Nancy's money, he could finally have some of the nice things he'd always wanted. Mark Crew decided that it was time to turn on the charm and win Nancy back. Mark Crew met Nancy Jo Andrade in late 1981. Right away, he began to covet the things that Nancy had been able to acquire while working long hours as a nurse and co-parenting her two children. Mark himself hadn't been that successful in his life. He was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1954, and while still a toddler, his family had moved to Northern California. He did fairly well in school and was athletic, playing several sports. His father and mother began having problems in their marriage. Someone later report that his mother had some mental health issues. She would be described by Mark's father, William Crewe, as uncommunicative and withdrawn for long periods. The couple eventually divorced when Mark was 15. After the divorce, Mark remained with his father and they moved to San Jose. Within a year, his father remarried a woman named Barbara. Barbara had three younger children. Mark didn't get along with his stepmother and had trouble transitioning into his father's new family. He would later complain that when his father and Barbara purchased a home, her three children were given bedrooms while he was made to sleep on the couch. About this time, Mark's grades began to slip. At the age of 17, he quit high school and enlisted in the army. Crew did well in military service. He was well-liked by the other soldiers and became a squad leader. He was promoted to the rank of sergeant and given the plum assignment as his base commander's driver. But Crew had bigger ambitions in life. He'd always aspired to be his own boss. He wanted to own a business and have money at his disposal to go on vacations, buy nice cars, and generally live the good life. However, Crew spent more time chasing women than working towards these goals. He was considered a ladies' man, as he easily attracted women with his dark good looks and glib charm. Attracting them wasn't a problem, but keeping them around was. Often, this was because he'd grow bored and begin chatting up another woman before ending the first relationship. Or sometimes the women who entered into relationships with Crewe realized, as Nancy had, that while he talked a good game, Crewe was too fickle to stick with anything for long—jobs, girlfriends, or even his place of residence. He moved from state to state and town to town, seeking out the next thing, and then before long, he was off again to the next place. Crewe enlisted in the Army in 1971. He'd kept in touch with his high school girlfriend— and they married soon after he completed basic training. He and his wife Patty had a daughter together, but by the time he was honorably discharged from the service in 1976, the couple had divorced. Crew learned auto mechanic skills while in the service. After his discharge, he took jobs as a mechanic and also a truck driver. His employers liked him and he was good at these jobs, but Crew was still restless. Before long, he met another woman and married for the second time. He and his wife, Deborah moved to Minnesota. But that marriage had ended by 1981. That year, he found himself back in Texas. His grandmother, Irene, was suffering from cataracts, and he moved into her home to take care of her for a few months. While there, he decided he wanted to return to California and made his way to that state in late 1981, taking another job as a truck driver. He started frequenting the Saddle Rack, where he met Nancy Joe. After a few weeks... Nancy had decided that Crewe wasn't someone looking for a serious relationship, and they had stopped dating. But Crewe continued to think about Nancy and all she brought to a relationship. She was beautiful and fun, but that didn't concern him that much. He'd had lots of women who were pretty and fun to be around. No, what really occupied Crewe's thoughts was Nancy's bank account and her possessions. Unlike him, Nancy had taken her career seriously and had been employed as a nurse for almost a decade. While they were together, Crew learned that Nancy had several thousand dollars in the bank. In the spring of 1982, Crew looked up Nancy again and set out to woo her. This time, though, he turned on the full wattage of his charms. He told Nancy about his ambition to start his own business. He was a skilled mechanic and believed he could run a successful garage. He entertained her with tales of his travels. Nancy had also dreamed of traveling. Crew also described for Nancy the beauty of the land where his mother and stepfather had settled in South Carolina. Greer, located in the northern part of the state, was surrounded by lakes and at least three national forests. It was an outdoor lover's paradise and a wonderful place for a person like Nancy Joe, who loved nothing more than taking a ride on her horse into the hills and countryside. I would imagine that this sounded like a wonderful place to Nancy, a country girl at heart, Drew may have really sold her on his dream of moving to South Carolina and opening a business by telling her about the lower cost of living in South Carolina compared to California. Perhaps he said that there, a person could own a nice house on a parcel of land for a fraction of what a house in the suburbs of San Jose would cost. Maybe Nancy was reeled in by Mark's sense of adventure. He'd been all over the country while she'd barely been anywhere. Or Mark may have convinced her that he was serious about settling down and putting down roots. Nancy didn't like being alone and wanted to find a loving partner. So far, she'd been unable to find the happiness she so desperately longed for. Perhaps, she thought, this man was the ticket to everything she was looking for. But when Mark asked her to move with him to Greer, Nancy balked. She told him she wouldn't think of moving so far away from her family and take a chance on a man she wasn't married to. No problem, Mark said, and proposed marriage. This was the commitment Nancy was looking for, So within two months of resuming their relationship, she married Mark Crewe in a Lake Tahoe chapel on June 4, 1982. But the new marriage would hit a snag not long after they tied the knot, because unknown to Nancy, she wasn't the only woman her husband had proposed to. Nancy Joe thought Mark Crewe had changed his womanizing ways when he proposed to her in the spring of 1982. They were married in June, but the same month they were wed, Crewe proposed to another woman he'd been seeing, Lisa Moody. Of course, Lisa didn't know her boyfriend was a newlywed when they became engaged. So far, they had not set a date for the wedding, but for all Lisa knew, they were soon to walk down the aisle. And strangely, this may have been a promise that Crewe intended to keep. Because, you see, he didn't plan to be married to Nancy Joe for long. While he was working to convince Nancy to marry him and move to South Carolina, he was already making plans to end her life. That spring, Crew shared his plan with his best friend, Richard Elander. He told Elander that he was planning to marry Nancy Joe and then take her on a honeymoon trip. Sometime during that trip, he planned to kill Nancy and then take control of her money and possessions. Rather than being horrified that his friend would consider such an evil deed, Elander instead helped crew to decide what would be the best method of murder. They discussed ways to kill someone without leaving a mess of evidence behind. Suffocation might work, they thought. Another plan was to hit Nancy with a blunt object while in the shower so the blood could be easily washed away. But what to do with the body, they pondered. One idea was for crew to dump it somewhere in the Utah wilderness. Perhaps he could bury her somewhere remote, or else hang her body in a tree where he believed bears would take care of their remains. But Crewe wasn't even committed enough to pretend to be a good husband until he could carry out his horrible plan. Soon after they were married, Nancy realized that he was still spending time with other women. She caught him twice chatting up other girls at the saddle rack. After that, she told friends she was considering annulling her marriage to Crewe. She moved out of the apartment she shared with her new husband and instead began staying with her friend Darlene. Darlene would report that at this time, she rarely saw Mark. In fact, he was carrying on a relationship with his fiancee, Lisa Moody. But that relationship stalled as well. In July, Mark Crewe did move to Greer, South Carolina, but instead of relocating there with his new wife, he took his friend Richard Elander. They moved in with Mark's mother and stepfather. With their help, Crew opened up a truck service business. If you'll remember, early that year, before Nancy began seeing Crew again, she'd planned on taking a road trip in her Corvette with her friend Darlene. Now with her new marriage on the skids and her husband clear across the country, Nancy felt there was nothing stopping her from taking that trip. The two women had a good time visiting the sites while driving across the country together. Nancy continued to keep in contact with Mark by phone. Truth was, Nancy didn't take marriage lightly, and was upset at how quickly her marriage had fizzled. So during the summer road trip, she and Darlene made a stop in Greer, and Nancy reconnected with her estranged husband. They end up spending the night together. She and Darlene began the return trip home the next day. Grew had already shared his murderous plans with Elander, and soon after Nancy left Greer, he then also told his stepfather, Bergen Mosteller, about the plan to kill Nancy he asked for his help and Mosteller agreed to return to California with Crewe to aid him in carrying out the plan. Now, I need to stop and ask, who are these people that Crewe surrounds himself with who would so easily be drawn into a murder plot? What kind of person was he that he had these types of people in his life? Very odd. After Nancy visited him in South Carolina, she and Crewe began talking more frequently. By early August of 1982, Nancy agreed to move to South Carolina so they could recommit to the marriage. She became excited about the prospect of starting a new life in South Carolina. Nancy began making plans for the move. Her 12-year-old daughter was sad that her mother was moving so far away, but Nancy told her all about her travels to that state and how much it had to offer. She promised her daughter that she would return for her by Christmas. (laughs) In August of 1982, Nancy Jo Andrade had sorted out all her affairs and was ready to make the move to South Carolina with her new husband, Mark Crew. She made arrangements for her two children to stay in California with their father for the time being, until she could get settled into her new home. She also closed out her bank accounts, withdrawing over $10,000 in cash and placing $2,500 in a money order. Nancy's friends were more than a little concerned that she was changing her life so drastically in such a short amount of time. The marriage had floundered within weeks after their quickie wedding, they pointed out, and they weren't at all sure that Mark Crew was the type of committed, stable guy Nancy wanted or needed. They also didn't know him well at all. Nancy's friend Deborah even commented that for all Nancy knew, her new husband might, quote, leave her out in the desert during their trip. Nancy laughed it off, but she also said she had concerns about Mark. Nancy had a niggling doubt at the back of her mind and wasn't completely sure she trusted him. When she shared her worries with Deborah, her friend responded that if Nancy had any doubts at all, she at least shouldn't take her kids with her until she was sure of her decision. It was at this time that Nancy decided that the best thing would be to give full temporary custody of her daughter and six-year-old son to their father. One thing Nancy would say before leaving the South Carolina would later haunt her friend. She told Deborah, if you don't hear from me in two weeks, send the police. Mark Crew returned to California to retrieve his bride for the move to Greer. Nancy still had her worries about making such a drastic life change, but she'd taken vows with this man and was determined to try and make things work. She quit her job at the hospital and packed up her belongings into two vehicles to begin the trip. On August 21, 1982, Mark and his stepfather, Bergen Mosteller, arrived to pick up Nancy from her friend Arlene's home. Mark had borrowed a station wagon to pull Nancy's horse trailer. Some of her things had been loaded into it. Bergen was to pick up Nancy's horse from a stable in Gilroy, a small town south of San Jose, and drive the station wagon and the trailer to Texas. There, he would leave the horse with a relative of Cruz. Nancy and Mark would follow Bergen to Texas, Nancy driving the Corvette, and Mark in the truck. They would drop the truck in Texas, and Nancy and Mark would then start a two-week honeymoon, making their way across the country in the Corvette. Richard Elander, Cruz's friend, offered to fly to Texas, pick up the truck, the horse, and the rest of Nancy's belongings, and drive everything to South Carolina. On August 23rd, Nancy and Mark arrived at Jake and Joan Wilhelmy's home in Santa Cruz County. Nancy visited her parents to say goodbye and to pick up some more of her belongings, including a microwave, stereo parts, and some personal documents. She hugged her mom and dad goodbye, and before leaving, they told her to make sure to call them and let them know that she was okay. She said, of course. You don't think I'd leave and never call you again, do you? But they never would hear from her again, nor would anyone else. After that day, Nancy Joe Andrade would simply disappear. Mark Crew's stepfather, Bergen Mosteller, told Nancy he would drive her horse and trailer to Texas, but he never went to Texas. Instead, he boarded the horse at a stable in San Jose and drove to Nevada. There he caught a flight to South Carolina. Nancy Joe never even made it out of Santa Clara County. Mark Crewe would later give an account of the following events to Richard Elander. According to Crewe, soon after leaving the Wilhelmys home in Santa Cruz, Mark and Nancy stopped in a secluded area and walked up a hillside into the woods. There he said he and Nancy sat on a hillside and talked. When she wasn't looking, he pulled out a gun and shot her in the back of the head. He then rolled her body into a ravine and covered it with a blanket. I have a bit of a problem with this story. First, I wonder if Nancy would have been trusting enough to walk into the woods with Mark Crewe. She must have had some premonition of danger when she told her friend if she didn't hear from her to call the police. Or was she simply joking? Her friend didn't think so. So would she have gone to a secluded location with Crewe willingly if she was at all wary of his intentions? Or is it possible that Crewe pulled over somewhere where they wouldn't be seen and forced Nancy to an isolated spot at gunpoint? We'll never know. We only know the virgin Crew told Elander. He then said he drove to another friend's house, Bruce Gant, who lived in Campbell, a town outside of San Jose. And incidentally, the town where I sit now recording this episode. Well, every episode. He told his friend about the murder and asked for his help. Gant agreed to go with him back to the murder scene to retrieve Nancy's other vehicle. Again, who are these friends? Gad picked up the car and drove it away. Crew then drove 15 miles north and checked into a Motel 6 in Fremont. And why would Crew drive to that town? Because his one-time fiancé, Lisa, lived in nearby Newark. He went to see her the next day. Perhaps wanting to get back into her good graces, Crew came bearing gifts. He brought Nancy's microwave and stereo, as well as some jewelry, and gave it to Lisa. He also asked her for a favor. Handing her $5,000 in cash, he asked her to get a cashier's check made out to his stepfather Bergen. I assume that was his cut for taking part in the murder plot. After leaving Lisa's place, Crewe drove to Bruce Gant's home in Campbell. Crewe told Gant that he needed to bury Nancy's body and tried to enlist his friend's help. Gant was reluctant and at first declined. Crewe and Gant then proceeded to get drunk. Filled with liquid courage, Gant finally agreed to accompany Crew back to the murder site. Once they arrived, Crew walked down the ravine to the place where he'd covered Lisa's body with a blanket. Within a minute, he came running back up the hill, freaked out, according to Gant. Crew said that the body had moved. Nancy was still alive. Gant offered to finish the job for his friend. He went to the body and tried to strangle her or break her neck. He finally took a knife and cut the head from the body. Okay, I hate to stop here on that terrible image, but I believe it was impossible that Nancy was still alive when Crew returned. It had been more than 36 hours approximately since Crew shot her and left her for dead. What's more possible is that both Crew and Gant were drunk, and possibly high as hell, and Crew freaked himself out when he saw the dead body. If the body had been moved, it was likely done by animals, or perhaps just by the shifting of ground where she was left lying. Gant and Crew retrieved a 55-gallon drum and a bucket, according to Elander's later account. Crew said they then put the body in the drum, filled it with cement, and buried it in Gant's backyard. The head was put into the five-gallon bucket. It was also filled with cement, and Crew took it with him. He claimed that on his way back to Lisa's house, he drove over the Dumbarton Bridge and dumped the bucket in the San Francisco Bay. Again, I just find this implausible. Why dispose of the head in a different place? Why not bury both in Gant's backyard instead of taking the risk of someone witnessing him dispose of it in a more public place? Crew convinced Lisa to take him back and also to move with him to South Carolina. On August 28th, five days after Nancy was last seen, Lisa Moody and Crew left California together in Nancy's truck. They stopped in Texas at Crew's grandmother's house. While there, he received a call from Gant. Gant told Crew that the body in the backyard was, quote, beginning to stink, unquote. Lisa would recall that after Crew received the phone call, he was agitated and upset. She didn't know who he'd spoken to or what was said. They continued on to South Carolina. Once Crew arrived in Greer, he told Elander the details of the murder and about the disposal of the body. Crew instructed his stepfather and Elander to sell some of Nancy's belongings. They took them to a flea market where the items were sold for about $500. Crew also opened a bank account depositing the $2,500 money order Nancy had withdrawn from her account before leaving San Jose. Other items belonging to Nancy were burned in Crew's backyard. Crew also arranged for Nancy's horse and trailer in San Jose to be sold. It's unknown how much Crew collected from the sale, but the horse alone was valued at over $1,200. In September, Crew and Lisa returned to San Jose. He'd sold Nancy's truck for $4,200, forging her signature on the title. As far as I can tell, Crew never had a plan to explain Nancy's disappearance. Perhaps he thought her friends and family would just believe she'd ridden off into the sunset with her Prince Charming, and that was that. But of course, when no one heard from her for days and then weeks, people began to investigate her parents knew that it was very unlike their daughter to stop communicating with them, her children, and her friends. Nancy's father, Jake Wilhelmy, contacted the police to report her missing. However, the San Jose PD said that she was an adult, and they didn't do much besides take the report. Wilhelmy continued to contact anyone who may have heard from Nancy, but there was no word from her after August 23rd. In October, 30 days after he'd filed the missing persons report, Wilhelmy received a call from a San Jose police officer asking if Nancy had returned home. Livid at discovering that nothing had been done to investigate his daughter's disappearance, Wilhelmy hired private investigator Bob Cauldron. He told Cauldron the same thing he told the police, that Nancy would not have just stopped calling her family, friends, and children, and he was sure something had happened to her. He told the PI the same thing he told the police, that he suspected her new husband, Mark Crewe, may have done something to Nancy. On October 13, 1982, Mark Crewe, whether out of paranoia, a guilty conscience, or some other reason, gave his girlfriend Lisa Moody an explanation about the mysterious phone call he'd received while they were in Texas a month earlier. He said that the call had been from, quote, a woman in San Jose who was obsessed with him, unquote. She had been going around telling people he was going to marry her, he claimed. He assured Lisa that he, of course, had no intention of doing so. Angry, the woman had contacted some people connected with the mafia. Oh, boy. She wanted these men to take care of him, Crew claimed. But instead, they had killed the woman and let him know what they'd done. He'd been forced to dispose of the woman's body, he told Lisa. Otherwise, he would have been blamed for her murder. He had buried her in the backyard of a friend, and the friend had called him in Texas to say that the decomposing body was giving off a telltale smell. At this point, Lisa must have wised up and realized she might be dealing with a psycho. While she didn't tell anyone about Crew's story or report it to the police, it appears that she must have given him his walking papers because, the following day, Crew returned alone to South Carolina. He was still in possession of Nancy's Corvette, and sold it to a man in South Carolina by the name of Marion Mitchell. Richard Elander, still living in Greer, was to give the title to the new owner. When Mitchell didn't receive the title, he began calling Elander to demand he hand it over. Elander, in order to explain the missing title, told Mitchell that Crewe had murdered his wife. Now, what you need to know at this point is that this is at least the second person Elander told about his friend, the murderer. Months earlier, after he and crew discussed the ways he could murder Nancy, Elander had taken a job on a ranch in Utah. While there, he asked his boss a strange question. Would the Utah mountains be a good place to dispose of a dead body, he wanted to know? The man, thinking Elander was just a weirdo, fired him. At least one person with a conscience. Too bad Elander didn't tell him who the intended victim was. Perhaps Nancy could have been warned. But now Elander told Mitchell all the gory details. Drew had murdered his wife, cut off her head, and buried her body in the backyard. Why he told him this is a head-scratcher, since after flapping his yap once again, he then handed Mitchell the title for the Corvette with Nancy's forged signature. Bob Coldren, the private investigator hired by Nancy's father, did the job the police had not he began questioning Nancy's friends and acquaintances. He'd so far had no luck in locating Mark Crewe either. But Crewe was going by several aliases, including Mark Christopher, his middle name, and Christopher Crewe. Several of his girlfriends didn't even know his real name. But Cauldron finally made contact with Lisa Moody. After speaking with her, Cauldron realized that her trip with Crewe to South Carolina happened at the same time that Nancy Joe was supposed to be traveling with him. But more importantly... Lisa shared the story Crew had told her right before she'd sent him packing about the body buried in the backyard. She also told the private investigator that rumor around town was that Crew had murdered Nancy Joe and buried her in his backyard. Crew's last residence had been in the town of Santa Clara, and Lisa believed that's where they'd find the body if he'd actually killed her. Coldren and Jake Wilhelmy took this information to the San Jose police, but they were still reluctant to investigate Nancy's disappearance as a murder. Frustrated, they contacted Congressman Leon Panetta and told him about Nancy's disappearance and their suspicion that she'd been murdered by her husband. Panetta, who would later serve as White House Chief of Staff for President Bill Clinton and CIA Director and Defense Secretary in Barack Obama's administration, pushed the San Jose PD to investigate Nancy Joe's disappearance. Now embarking on their own investigation, the San Jose PD was able to find witnesses who'd purchased items from crew that it was determined had belonged to Nancy Jo Andrade. They also discovered a shallow grave in the backyard of Crew's last known residence in Santa Clara. However, it was empty. Other witnesses were interviewed, who all said they'd heard Crew talk about killing Nancy months before she disappeared. Um, why didn't any of these people make a report to police about these plans and threats? Better yet, why not contact the intended victim so she could be made aware she was possibly in danger? Here's a tip from this podcast. If you ever hear anyone say they're planning to kill someone, warn that person. Perhaps you might suffer a twinge of embarrassment if it turns out to just be talk, but so what? And if the person gets a visit from a detective, maybe that will make them think twice before making these kind of jokes again. Geez. Not only that, but if police had questioned anyone at all who knew Mark Crewe, they would have heard all about the murder because Crew had told several people about how he'd murdered his wife. The investigation uncovered even more witnesses who gave details of the murder as described to them by Mark Christopher Crewe. After Crew left California when Lisa Moody showed him the door, he thought better of using any of his former aliases and now began calling himself Robert Ellis. Crew sought out an ex-girlfriend who lived in Connecticut and talked his way back into her life. He moved to Connecticut and began living with Jeannie Mescal in January of 1983. In San Jose, the investigation into Nancy's disappearance and presumed murder continued. In March, a search was conducted of Bruce Gant's property. In his home, they discovered items belonging to Nancy, including a Tiffany lamp. The backyard was searched using steel probes to determine if there was anything buried there, but nothing was found. It's likely that Gant or someone else had moved the remains to another location at some point. Sadly, Nancy Joe's body has to this day not been found. In May of 1983, the FBI issued a fugitive warrant for Mark Christopher Crewe for grand theft. Crewe, at this point, had been living in Connecticut for two years as Robert Ellis and working as a mechanic. But hold your hats. He had confessed once more to Nancy's murder. This time, he told his girlfriend all the details, saying that Nancy's body was in two pieces encased in two drums filled with cement. One barrel was in San Francisco Bay, and the other was, quote, in a backyard, unquote, he told Jeannie. This guy cannot stop flapping his lips. But surprise, Jeannie was not the one to turn Mark Crew into police. Instead, it was a former girlfriend who discovered he had not told her his true identity, She'd been suspicious, and after he left her for another woman, set out to discover his real name. She enlisted a friend who worked in law enforcement to help, and the friend had discovered that the ex-boyfriend was Mark Christopher Crew, who was wanted by the FBI. They contacted the police. In 1984, Crew was picked up at his Connecticut home without incident and charged with grand theft. Investigators uncovered additional information about the sale of more of Nancy's belongings, including her horse and vehicles. However many times Crewe and his co-conspirators confessed to others about the murder of Nancy Joe, proving he was responsible for her murder in court would be difficult. First of all, no body had been recovered. The time and manner of her death could not be proven with physical evidence. The case would have to be built solely on witness testimony, the timing of her disappearance, and the sale of her belongings. The FBI leaned on witness Richard Elander to make a deal. In exchange for immunity, he agreed to give testimony regarding Mark Cruz's actions at the time of Nancy's disappearance and the details Cruz shared with him about the murder. Elander was the star witness for the prosecution, but others also testified about Cruz's confessions to them, including Lisa Moody... Jeannie Mescal, and others. The murder trial was subjected to delay after delay, with crew burning through four defense attorneys and two district attorneys. The date for the trial was pushed back for years, while Jake Wilhelmi spoke out publicly about the pain and suffering Nancy Joe's loved ones experienced without seeing justice done. Wilhelmy, also desperate to know where his daughter's body had been buried, reached out to Bruce Gant in 1984. He pleaded with him to tell him the location of Nancy's body so her family could give her a proper burial. Gant told him he, quote, might as well give up trying to find Nancy's body, saying he wouldn't get within 100 yards of her, and also said that the U.S. government didn't have enough money to excavate her body. The murder trial finally began in July of 1989 almost seven years after Nancy Joe went missing. Santa Clara County District Attorney Dave Davies tried the case. Ron McCurdy was in charge of the investigation for the DA's office. The trial lasted for a month, with 49 witnesses called to testify. Elander was a star witness for the prosecution, but there was testimony from others who helped the prosecution portray Crewe as a remorseless killer who murdered his bride for financial gain. Crew's brother, Doug, told the court that just weeks before his brother married Nancy, Mark told him, quote, Doug, I've done so many things. I think I'd like to kill somebody just to see if I could get away with it, unquote. The defense tried to discredit Richard Elanders' testimony, portraying him as a drug-addicted liar. They reminded the jury that the prosecution had no murder weapon, no body, and no proof that Nancy was actually dead. But the prosecution countered, saying Nancy's murder was evidenced by the fact that contact with her family and friends ended abruptly after August 23, 1982, the day after she left her parents' home with Crew. Her friend Jeanette testified that for 20 years, Nancy had not failed to call her on her birthday, which fell on August 24. Nancy did not call her on that day in 1982, the day after she was last seen, and Jeanette never heard from her again. Nancy had also promised to call her friend Nilda Hausman every other week after she arrived in South Carolina. Nilda never heard from her friend. Debbie Nordman was also called to testify about the comment Nancy made to her shortly before leaving San Jose that, quote, if she didn't hear from her in two weeks to call the police, unquote. The prosecution also pointed to the evidence that Crew began selling Nancy's possessions just days after her disappearance. He'd sold her truck, car, trailer, and even her clothes, and had also spent her money. In the end, jurors believed the account provided by Richard Elander and found Mark Crewe guilty of one count of murder and one count of grand theft. A special circumstance was added to the murder charge in that it had been carried out for financial gain, making Crewe eligible to receive the death penalty. On August 10, 1989, Mark Christopher Crewe was sentenced to death in the first-ever case in the state of California where the death penalty was handed down without the victim's body being found. He was sent to San Quentin's death row, where he would await his execution in the gas chamber. After seven long years, Nancy Joe's family finally believed justice had been served. But the ordeal was not over yet. Six months after Crewe was sentenced, Judge John Schatz threw out the jury's recommendation of death and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge cited Cruz's lack of criminal record or history of violence as his criteria. There was a public outcry about this reversal. The state appellate court would later rule that the judge had acted improperly in throwing out the original sentence and ordered him to conduct a new hearing. There were calls for Judge Schatz's resignation, and to avoid the backlash, he announced his retirement in 1992. In 1993 the Superior Court of California reinstated Crew's death sentence. Others were also charged in the murder of Nancy Joe Andrade. Bruce Gant and Bergen Mosteller were charged with conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and grand theft. Their trials were combined, and both men were acquitted. It's hard to believe they weren't at least found guilty of the grand theft charges. Mark Christopher Crewe continues to appeal his conviction. I read some of the appeal records, and it appears that he's just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. In 2013, he filed his second amended petition that included 47 claims for appeal. The court responded in 2015 by telling him they would proceed with only 25 of these claims, considering them in three rounds with no more than nine claims to be included in each petition. Claim 24 was ineffective assistance of trial counsel, for failure to investigate mitigating circumstances. Crew claimed that he had been sexually abused by his mother and that his attorney had failed to bring this up in either the trial or sentencing phase. Most of the testimony presented by the defense had been centered around the claim that Crew was raised in a loving home devoid of abuse or neglect. Character witnesses were called from Crew's friends, army buddies, coworkers, and ex girlfriends who said he'd never been violent and was kind and generous. The court responded to the claim by saying that beyond Crew's report of sexual abuse to a court psychologist 17 years after his arrest, he presented no proof of the alleged abuse. The attorney general's office called the evidence of Crewe's background unremarkable and said, in their opinion, none of it would have changed the jury's recommendation. Instead, Crewe may have done well to focus the ineffective assistance of counsel claim around the allegations that his attorney was often under the influence of alcohol during trial proceedings as stated in the appeal record. Court documents record that Crew's lead attorney, Joseph O'Sullivan, was, quote, drinking so much in advance of the trial that he cut his days short to consume alcohol, unquote. It was also reported that O'Sullivan entered rehab soon after the trial ended. The last portion of Crew's appeal was denied in 2019. Crew could have avoided the death penalty altogether, since while awaiting trial, the prosecutor offered twice to take the death penalty off the table if he would just tell Nancy Joe's family where her body was located. He refused the deal. Nancy Joe's father fought for years to bring his daughter's killer to justice. Without his insistence that her disappearance and likely murder be fully investigated, in his own efforts to get answers by hiring a private investigator, Nancy's fate may have never been discovered. But the years of investigation and drawn-out court proceedings took its toll. Jake and Joan Wilhelmy were married for 44 years, but the years of grief and stress irreparably damaged their relationship, and they divorced soon after the trial concluded. Jake Wilhelmy joined his local chapter of Parents of Murdered Children and began his own organization, Justice for Murder Victims becoming an advocate for victims and their families. Jake Wilhelmi moved to Utah and died in 2015 at the age of 88. Today, Nancy Jo Wilhelmi Andrade would be 70 years old. Both of her children are married with families. She is a grandmother of six. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime, and that will wrap up the series till death do us part. Stay subscribed because a whole new series will begin next week, and you won't want to miss it. Also, make sure you're subscribed to my other podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime. A new episode will be released this week. I and a special guest host will discuss a whole laundry list of true crime breaking news, including updates in the Golden State Killer case, the Valo Daybell case, the West Memphis Three case, and a whole lot more. There's a link in the show notes to add Let's Talk About True Crime to your podcast playlist. Don't forget, you can become a Once Upon a Crime Patreon member for as little as $2 a month for ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and we have some brand new gifts going out to new members. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to become a member and support the show. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, Be good to one another.